Our second reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there these days? in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was, that he was alive. Some of those who were, there, who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is, a, it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. In his book, Being Mortal, physician and author Atul Gawande wrote, simply existing seems empty and meaningless because we all seek a cause beyond ourselves. A little less philosophical is Masha, the, third, the middle sister in Chekhov's The Three Sisters, written a hundred years earlier. She said, you've got to know what you're living for or else it's all nonsense and a waste. Does life have a purpose or is it all meaningless? 3,000 years ago, a guy named Solomon, who happened to be king of Israel, went on this very quest. In Ecclesiastes 1.13, we read his quest. I applied my mind to study and explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. Now, you have to remember, Solomon was considered one of the wisest men of all. He had all the learning you possibly could. He read the philosophers. He read the religious tracts, the pieces of paper that you could get your hands on. He knew everything you could know, and he was incredibly wise. He was also the most powerful man alive in his kingdom, and he built the kingdom of Israel greater than any king before or after him ever did. He built buildings, established government structures, 
created order. He had a lasting impact. He was also the wealthiest man alive and was able to buy and have access to anything he could possibly want. And as he also tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes, he spared himself no pleasure. Food, drink, sex, he had it all. And here was his conclusion in verse 14 of Ecclesiastes 1. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun, and all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. We are teleological creatures. Teleological comes from the Greek word telos, meaning end or goal-oriented, like the ribbon at the end of a race. We spend our life pursuing things, trying to achieve something. It's almost like we can't not do that. And what happens when you actually get what you're after, when you achieve your dreams, and then you find they don't actually satisfy you? You know what that's called? It's called a midlife crisis. That's actually what a midlife crisis is. It's getting to that point in your career or your family, and you get it. You've been pursuing it for 20, 30 years. You get there, and you realize it doesn't fill you up as much as you had hoped. In 2005, Steve Croft interviewed Tom Brady on 60 Minutes. He had just won his third Super Bowl and was, at the time, dating Giselle Bündchen, a supermodel. Brady shared about how all this felt. He said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? A lot of people would say, I reached my goal, my dream. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I've done it. I'm 27. What else is there for me? He had a very early midlife crisis. <laughs> Tim Keller, in his book, Making Sense of God, explains the situation. If people say that their lives feel meaningless, it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have good jobs, family and friends, and the means to live in a materially comfortable way. It means they are not sure what all the activity is being done for. They are not sure all they're making and getting actually matters. So does life matter? Is there a purpose? A hundred years ago, Nietzsche, a philosopher, argued from the basis of scientific reasoning and empirical proof, basically what you can see and observe and prove, the way we prove everything. He said, on that basis, there is no meaning. There is no truth, and you cannot say something is right and something is wrong. You actually cannot prove it, he argued. And for 100 years afterwards, 20th century philosophers, from Albert Camus to Woody Allen, whined and wailed that life was absolutely absurd. James Wood, a literary critic and Harvard professor, wrote about a fellow Harvard professor who, he said, lies awake at night asking this question. How can it be that this world is accidental? How can there be no design, no purpose? Can it be that every life, my own, my spouse's, my child's, is irrelevant? This Harvard professor was recognizing the things that Woody Allen and Albert Camus 
and Friedrich Nietzsche all hit on. It's this, we will all die, and 10,000 years from now, or 20,000, or 30,000, it will make no difference whether you live your life like Mother Teresa or like maniacal Nazi doctor Joseph Mengele. You will both be forgotten, and nothing will be left. But is that your experience, that life has no meaning? What about making an impact for others, as one of the guys in the video said, or love and family and friendship and things that we enjoy? But the question any good 20th century philosopher would ask is, how can you be sure love and meaning exist at all? On what grounds? From reasoning and secular philosophy, you cannot prove it. You simply can't. Now, my own personal view is, apart from God, it's near impossible to have a coherent explanation for purpose and meaning. But we all try. We all try. Today, we're in the 21st century, and actually, most of us today have thrown off that, that bleak 20th century view, like the Nietzsche stuff and the Woody Allen stuff, and we've thrown it off because it's bleak. Basically, nowadays, the prevailing view is to ignore the unprovable stuff. You can't prove that there's meaning, but heck, live as if there is. Focus on the now and try to be happy. So the prevailing philosophy for defining meaning now is you need to find your purpose. Fifty years ago, that would have been considered dumb. Nowadays, that's what we do. Try to find your own purpose. Everyone is free to choose their own meaning, so be happy, or do what you're passionate about, or try to make a difference in the world. But I still ask the question, how can you know if the purpose that you've chosen actually matters, or is right, or is good? Think about it. To some people, happiness is found in caring for others. To others, it's in eating them. Who's to say which is good and which is bad? Well, we would argue that's ridiculous. Everyone knows caring for people is better than eating them, right? Everyone knows that. But that's appealing to collective conscience. It's saying there are some things that we all know, we all agree on, that it's wrong to eat people, it's right to care for people. We all agree on that. And I would argue that that's a weak foundation for any moral philosophy. Just because everyone agrees doesn't make it right or true. Ask a black man in the Jim Crow South. Ask a Jew in Nazi Germany. Ask the Chinese comfort women under Imperial Japan whether what everyone agrees is always right and true. No, Nietzsche was right. Without absolute truth, even freedom and equality are subjective. And we can't actually prove what's right or good or true.
Keller shines a light on the view of strict secularism when he writes, strict secularism holds that people are only physical entities without souls, that when loved ones die, they simply cease to exist, that sensations of love and beauty are just neurochemical events, and that there is no such thing as right and wrong. These positions, for most of us, are at the very least deeply counterintuitive. So what if there is a purpose, a purpose that exists beyond us, one that we discover and understand and live into, not a purpose that we determine and create on our own and hope it works out, hope it makes us happy? Put another way, what if there is a composer and a musical score and you're not just intended to grab some pots and pans and bang and make some noise like a toddler because that's what you want to do, but rather you are intended to play your instrument, your instrument's part in his symphonic masterpiece. Strict secularism says you are the author of your own book. Christianity claims God is the author. And you find your purpose and your meaning as you understand your character's story in his grand narrative. That's essentially what happened to the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. In Luke 24, two disciples are leaving Jerusalem, walking several miles to Emmaus. And they're in deep disillusionment and despair because Jesus has been crucified and buried. An unknown person walks up along them and says, why are you guys so sad? And they say, haven't you heard? Jesus has been crucified and he's dead. In verse 21, we read all their hopes were built up in him. We had hoped that he was the one. He was a great prophet. You should have heard him preach. He challenged the religious leaders. He welcomed the poor and the outcast. He healed the sick. He, he forgave people. We thought he was the one, but they crucified him, and he's dead. It's not what we expected. And Jesus then explains to them the story. Beginning with Moses, we read in verse 27, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, starting in Genesis and moving on to Exodus and the Psalms and Isaiah and Jeremiah, all through the, the scriptures, Jesus shows them there is a story. There had always been a plan. In fact, he's the author and the main character, and they have a part in the story too. Christianity makes the bold claim that life is not accidental and meaningless. There is a plan, an intention, an author, a purpose. Here's the basic Christian story. God created us to know him and experience his love. But we reject God and choose to live life on our own apart from God. That's the definition of sin, choosing to live life on our own apart from God. So God sends his son into the world to deal with our sin by going to the cross. He rose from the grave to offer us a way to eternal life. Now, through faith in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, we can be forgiven, 
We can know God. We can enjoy His love forever. One day, one day, God will right all wrongs, restore all things, and our deepest longings will be fulfilled. But even now, we can live life to the full with purpose, knowing God, His love, and His plan. The disciples heard it all, and their lives were changed. They moved from disillusionment and sorrow and despair. It's all fallen apart. Jesus is dead. We've got nothing to live for. And within a couple of days, they had absolute joy, total freedom, and they were the most bold and radical people ever to exist. They believed the tomb was empty because Jesus was risen. They believed Jesus was risen because Jesus saves. And they believed that you can know God even now and forever. And they wanted everybody in the world to know it. Go look at the histories. Pretty much every disciple died a horrible, torturous death because they claimed and believed Jesus rose from the dead and is the greatest news in the world, and he's worth dying for. Easter is the single most influential event in history. Hands down, Easter is the single most influential event in history. One-third of the world's seven billion people are Christians because of Easter. All of Western civilization, individual rights, equality, justice, and freedom, the things that we take for granted, are built on the foundation of a crucified and risen Jesus. Don't take it from me. Let me give you a couple of other experts. Luke Ferry a French philosopher and atheist argues in his book, the Greek world was fundamentally an aristocratic world, a universe organized as a hierarchy in which those most endowed by nature should in principle be at the top, while the less endowed saw themselves occupying inferior ranks. In direct contradiction, Christianity was to introduce the notion that humanity was fundamentally identical, equal in dignity, an unprecedented idea at the time, and one to which our world owes its entire democratic inheritance. Luke Ferry is still an atheist. Jürgen Habermas, another philosopher and atheist, has moved from anti-religious to maybe there's some good in it over the past 20 to 30 years when he writes, the ideals of freedom, human rights, and democracy are the, the direct legacy of the Judaic ethic of justice and the Christian ethic of love. To this day, there is no alternative to it. And then a guy you've never heard of, Zhao Jinping. He's the director of the Institute of World Religions, the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. He's a member of the Communist Party and was tasked with trying to see how religions and the world around us might influence and help move China into the 21st century as a global player. Here's what he writes. Only by accepting the Christian understanding of transcendence can we understand the real meaning of freedom, human rights, tolerance, equality, justice, democracy, the rule of law, environmental protection. Christianity is not just a bygone religious tradition. Easter was the most influential event ever.
and think about the Christian gospel, the things that undergird all of our assumptions in the West. The Christian gospel says that you are saved by grace, that all of us are equally sinners, and any of us can be saved by faith in Christ, regardless of our ethnicity, our nationality, how good or bad we are, all of us are equal, all of us can be saved. Christianity calls us to love and forgive even our enemies, and the power to do so is because Jesus was crucified for his enemies. Even the freedom to ask questions that we assume in the West, to seek answers on our own, is actually undergirded by a Christian worldview. Think about it. Christianity was the first religious and, and worldview way of thinking that said, you personally must respond. Jesus went around and said, you must repent and believe and follow me. Not because your parents believe in me, therefore you are. Or because you were born in America, therefore you are. Jesus said, you personally must respond. Basically, he's saying, you must ask questions. You must seek on your own. Things that we assume that we're allowed to question authority and ask questions and seek on our own are because of the guy who died and rose. Christianity has also been academically examined more thoroughly, more comprehensively than any philosophy, worldview, or religion in the history of humanity. And you know what? It still stands up, and it continues to grow. So you at least owe it to yourself to examine it. We all want purpose and meaning in life. We do. But even the best career, even the perfect marriage and the ideal family cannot meet our desires fully because the depth of our longing is not just relational or physical or emotional. It's also spiritual and eternal. We are looking for a love and a purpose that only God can provide. Here's what I've found for myself. For myself, I've found that my life has purpose and meaning, that I matter. I matter not, not because I'm a pastor and I have a church and my career is going along swimmingly, not because I'm married and have kids. I matter because Christ died for me. And that assures me that God loves me. In spite of my failures and my sin, I am loved deeply. And God wants me. Even if I never do or become or accomplish a thing, God still wants me enough to die for me. Christianity claims the purpose of life is found in Jesus. Through faith in Christ and knowing Jesus, you find yourself and you find the story. It's not about being good versus being bad. It's not about going to church and putting money in the basket when it comes around. I mean, if you want to come to church and put money in the basket when it comes around, I'm not going to stop you, but that's not what it's about. It is about Jesus recognizing him as the risen Savior and Lord. Well, as your risen Savior and Lord. The gospel tells us anyone, anyone, anyone can come to Jesus. But it also says 
Everyone must come through Jesus. In John chapter 20, Mary Magdalene goes and finds the tomb empty. She runs back and tells the disciples. John and Peter come running to the tomb. Peter dives himself into the tomb. John stays behind. And then we read in John 20, verse 8, the other disciple went in, and he saw and believed. He went, he saw, and he believed for himself. Today we began a sermon series called Explore God. Today and over the next six weeks, we're going to be asking the big questions. Does God exist? Is Jesus the way? What about suffering? Can you actually trust the Bible? Look, maybe, maybe you've got it all figured out and you have no doubts, or you're content just to try to be happy and you don't really like asking the big questions because they hurt your brain a little bit. But if you do question things, if you are uncertain and skeptical and are willing to examine, then I'm going to invite you in. Enter and look for yourself, if not here on your own. See if the tomb is empty. See if there is a purpose worth living for bigger than you. And see if Jesus is the answer. Let's pray. God, we have many questions and doubts. It's hard to look around this world and the things we care about and think it's meaningless, and yet it's hard to prove you exist. Give us eyes to see what we need to see, to discern ways forward, to examine, to look, to be open and honest, and humble enough to be changed. In Jesus' name, amen.